up on Farage tonight. We're going to talk about the cross-channel migrant crisis as record numbers cross the English Channel, but perhaps a very different angle with our debate with you this evening. We're going to speak to an academic from Oriel College where the Make Roads Full campaign has been in full swing. She's accusing her fellow dons of being virtue signalers and being overprivileged. And Charlie Mullins of Pimlico Plumbers fame. And, of course, a real hard Remainer, perhaps even Ramona, is going to come in and have a drink with me. What could possibly go wrong? So, pretty much as predicted yesterday, I did say on the programme that huge numbers had crossed the English Channel yesterday and we showed some footage. Um, I was being slightly cautious in terms of estimating numbers. The official Home Office figures that we got last night were that 430 people uh, were registered illegally crossing the English Channel yesterday. That is a record. It beat the record of 416 from last September. Although I wonder, at the time we got the numbers, whether, in fact, boats were still arriving. Either way, it's a massive number. Uh, we're already pretty much at the same numbers in 2021 that crossed over last year in the whole of 2020. It's about 8,000. And I've been predicting all year it would be 20,000. It may well be 30,000. That's the way I'm beginning to look at it. But something that happened this morning uh, that was really very, very interesting. There was a beach landing that took place at a place called Kingsdown near Deal in Kent. And I want you to have a look at this footage, listen uh, to what is being said by the observers, and in particular, observe the actions of two gentlemen who run down the beach to actually greet the migrant boat. Let's have a look. Who were those blokes that came down from over here to hold it? Who the f are you? Yeah, really? Yeah, you're evading and abetting, aren't you? Don't worry, the police are coming. Well, some tensions there. So clearly, you could see a boat landing on that beach, two men. Uh, who ran down to help people out of the boat and afterwards sort of pulled the boat up the beach and, and looked after the life jackets. They identified themselves as Channel Rescue. So, who are Channel Rescue? Well, at the top of their website, they say their aims and objectives are to hold authorities to account in their duty to uphold the human rights of those crossing the English Channel and to advocate a safe passage and progressive legislation around refugees and migrants making those journeys across the Channel. Well, that's who they are. Now, I have to say, I looked at what went on this morning and I thought there's something very funny going on here. As it turned out, they did give statements to Border Force um, and what they said uh, was very, very clear. They said that they were acting in the public interest. They said that they had assisted the boat coming across. Uh, and this was put out on Facebook this morning. Two of our Channel Rescue volunteers were out spotting on the cliffs this morning and saw a small boat crossing the Channel. After observing it for some time, they realised that the boat was not 
going to be intercepted by Border Force or the RNLI, and was heading towards some rocks. Luckily, our volunteers were able to guide the people on the boat towards a safe landing place on the beach. On board were families with at least two babies. Our volunteers went to greet the people on the boat once they eventually reached the shore, where they were all accosted by a number of people shouting and behaving in a hostile way. After the landing, the Channel Rescue volunteers were approached by Border Force and made a statement about what they had witnessed. We are really grateful uh, to our volunteers for helping people crossing the Channel. So my question to you tonight, uh, and I'd like you to respond on GB Views at GB News, is should members of the public be assisting boats crossing, illegally crossing the English Channel? In fact, are they acting as good Samaritans? Or, as that member of the public said, were they actually in some ways helping people carry out what, frankly, is a criminal activity. And, and that's the debate that I want to have this evening. I, I have to say, uh, it, it seemed to me uh, that if they were guiding them into uh, the English beaches, how were they doing it? I mean, did they have telephone uh, connectivity? And if they'd seen a boat in the English Channel, why didn't they simply ring Border Force or the RNLI. A lot of questions here to answer. Should members of the public get involved in these crossings? Are they good Samaritans or are they doing something that really is wrong? Well, joining me now is Steve Valdez-Simmons, Refugee and Asylum Rights Director at Amnesty International. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Um, tell me, uh, you saw that footage a moment ago, I hope. Um, do you think Channel Rescue are doing the right thing in guiding these vessels onto Kent beaches? Well, I see no particular concern about members of the public assisting people um, to avoid um, rocks or their boat overturning if that's, if that's in, uh, necessary. I, I don't know particularly about channel rescue. And one thing I certainly would agree is that if anybody sees people in difficulty at sea, the sensible and appropriate thing to do would be to contact the RNLI, who obviously not only have responsibilities for rescue at sea, but have expertise in carrying that out. Yeah, and we don't know, and that's the question I'm asking. And, I, and by the way, I did ask Channel Rescue to come on this programme. I did send them an invitation and some questions, and we haven't had a response yet, but if they want to come on, uh, you know, they will be very, very welcome to do so. But isn't the fact that behind all of this are some pretty deeply unpleasant criminal gangs. There's big money involved. And, and, and in some ways, if we've got members of the British, organised members of the British public, in touch with migrants crossing the channel, I mean, you can see why some might say that it's actually aiding and helping the traffickers. Well, I, I, I don't see that, quite frankly. I mean, that, that boat... Uh, presumably, if it had been the, the journey set up by smugglers or, or traffickers, well, probably not traffickers, because they would be controlling the people on their arrival to abuse them here too. Um, but if it had been controlled by smugglers, then they've long since uh, lost their interest. They've received their funds. They've set people on their journeys. So I, I don't see it as assisting the smugglers at all. Now, tell me, you know, we've got 8,000 people so far that have crossed the channel illegally. Um, I'm saying it could be you know, well in excess of 20,000 this year. Um, I mean, from an amnesty position, of course I understand that you do represent and stand up for genuine refugee rights. 
How many of the people coming into the UK from France, in your opinion, would genuinely qualify as refugees? Well, let's start with the Home Office's opinion, because they determine claims and then, as you know, that there are independent appeals against refusals. It's quite clear that over the last few years, the success rates have been well above 50% and indeed are rising. And now somewhere approaching two thirds of claims are made by people who prove their claims. I'd also add, of course, that the people who make these particular journeys, the ones that you see on the on the TV with crossing by boat, who are a small minority of the people still who make asylum claims, which, by the way, are still falling. Um, those people have disproportionately high success rates because of the countries from which they come. Yeah, and yet they've come from a safe country um, in the shape of France. You see, I, I keep reading, Steve, I keep hearing reports about poor, desperate people. I mean, just have a quick look at, at, at this man that, that, that landed on a Kent beach with a crowd yesterday. I mean, he looks like he's won the lottery. Um, he doesn't actually look like somebody... Uh, I mean, I, you know, I've seen pictures of, of people coming, for example, from Uganda in the 70s, who were humble and very grateful to the United Kingdom for, for letting them come here and live their lives. I mean, what, is, what does that image say to you? Well, it speaks to someone who has an enormous amount of relief at having made what is a dangerous crossing successfully. And let's not make the direct comparisons that you've just made with Ugandan refugees. Very important what the UK eventually, albeit under extreme amount of pressure at that time, did. It then provided routes to this country for people to take. That man hasn't been provided with any safe route at all. And indeed, I wonder at, and Amnesty, as you know, has well documented the journeys that many of the people that we see on our television have made, um, all the way from their countries of origin, often experiencing torture and abuse on the way, and no, not receiving safety in France at all. So if he is feeling a great deal of jubilation at finally arriving here, I can certainly empathise with that. Well, he knows he's not going to be sent back anywhere. He knows he's going to be looked after. I mean, I can understand why he feels very happy. But I put it to you that the vast majority of these men, and it is overwhelmingly, as you know, men and particularly young men that are coming, I put it to you that actually these are economic migrants, not genuine refugees. Well, the data just doesn't, doesn't bear that out. And if you bother to look at the data, you will see that the great majority of these people show that their claims are successful, that they are refugees. And so what it means is that we are compelling people to take dangerous journeys rather than providing safe routes for them. Yes, it's disruptive and it would be better if it didn't happen. Yes, it's dangerous and everyone would like to avoid that. And yes, of course, it's exploited by highly unscrupulous and ruthless people. Mm. And we should all want to deter that. But none of that is what is happening. And so people are driven to make these dangerous journeys because that's all that's left to them. So what should we do? Just finally, Steve, should we have an offshore processing centre? Would that make more sense? No, it would be extremely expensive, as the uh, Australian uh, policy has shown. Vast amounts of money processing only a tiny proportion of the people who seek asylum in that country and doing enormous cruelty to them. We should be opening up real and serious routes to seeking asylum in this country, including mm. from northern France, particularly by those people who have family right. and connections here. It sounds like a lot of people would come under that plan. Well, a significant number of people might come under that plan, but the fact remains that this country receives very, very few refugees, including under its resettlement routes. 
France at the moment is hosting something around four times the number of people um, who have fled persecution and has an asylum system with nearly four times the number of people in it. We cannot keep going with that sort of disproportionality. Of course, it leaves some people, like perhaps the man whom you showed in the picture, destitute and excluded because they cannot get into safe systems. OK. OK. Steve, thank you very much indeed. Well, that was the view from Amnesty International. Don't say that on GB News you don't get both sides of the argument. Now, one million kids have been off school over the course of the last week. I mean, it simply beggars belief. Uh, I, I, I frankly find it very difficult. Now, I, I, I think most schools are breaking up now, but I'm going to ask Richard Sheriff uh, to join me now, President of the Association of School and College Leaders and Executive Head Teacher of the Red Kite Learning Trust in Yorkshire. Richard, uh, so what happens? One kid in a class or a year group gets tested positive and everybody else goes home. Is that really what's going on here? No, Nigel, it isn't. Um, can I just say that as a head teacher, the worst thing you endure is watching children go away from school, closing school down. So it's an extremist we do this. So every effort is made with following the government's guidelines to make sure that we minimise the impact of any case that's reported. So we try to you know, look at where the close contacts are and only send the ones that have to be sent home according to the guidance home. And it is hugely frustrating for us to see those children go. And I know it's hugely frustrating for families. But, you know, the guidance is there to keep us safe. We're trusting the scientists to keep that guidance right. And that's what we've been doing. Now, how many schools are broken up? How many are still? Is it, is it the end of this week that nearly all schools pack up for summer or not? That's right. By the end of this week, we should see most, most schools certainly finish. I know ours finish on Friday and we're looking forward to, to Friday at the end of school. And, I mean, this must be for parents. I mean, just awful. I mean, I had an example of someone I know, uh, and she received a phone call to say, uh, you've got to come and collect your child from school. But she was a long way away working and had to find someone to substitute. I mean, it does seem this must be putting enormous pressure on working parents. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's putting, work, it's putting enormous pressure on all of us, on schools and on parents. And it is not ideal. The problem are we, we're in the middle of a, of a pandemic. You know, still we're going through this. We've seen cases rising phenomenally over the last few weeks. So when we, it would almost disappeared and we were like really enjoying being back to normal and children yeah. being in school. And then this kicked off again. So now we're seeing this impact again like it was before. And we hate it. School leaders, teachers, families, we don't enjoy it. We're looking forward to getting out of this as soon as possible. One of the big debates that's going on here is, should we be vaccinating children against COVID? How do you feel as a head teacher about that? Well, I think the announcement uh, just the other day saying that we're going to vaccinate those, those students who are vulnerable in the kind of 16 to 18 year group, brilliant, fantastic. So hopefully we can get more children back securely and reassure parents and those children. Should we vaccinate all children? I think, again, I would be led by the science on this. I understand there's still not as much evidence as they need to say to parents, convince them 100% this is the right thing to do. So I think we need to wait for that before we jump forward. Technically, you know, theoretically, wonderful, absolutely wonderful. There is an ethical issue as well, which you'd expect to raise, which is, you know, if it's not going to make a difference to children who don't get sick anyway, and there's other people who deserve it more, 
then we should look at that. And maybe in other countries outside the UK who we need to also support. So we need to think carefully about this, not just yeah. be too selfish. Yeah, I mean, really, you know, it's the job of, of adults to look after children. And we're kind of talking about vaccinating children uh, as a means of looking after adults. And that's what concerns me. Do you think if this does happen, there could be considerable parental pushback? Oh, I think without really clear evidence and the, the chief scientific officer and chief medical officer saying, yes, it's absolutely safe for children to be vaccinated, parents quite rightly will push back. They will. Uh, they need to be reassured. But always with these things, it's not going to be black and white. It's a balance of risks. And I think that's where we've become, you know, it's really challenging for all of us, isn't it? You know, when you've got shades of grey and actually yeah. the balance of getting sick from COVID and the balance of taking the risks of not having vaccination, you know, you have to balance those. After a very, very difficult academic year, are you looking forward to breaking up and having a couple of weeks off? Uh, certainly am. And I'm just going to say on behalf of all school leaders across the country, they all are. And it's yeah, a short I break bet. because we're actually back for results and then we've got appeals and then we've got summer schools and then we've got rapid testing back to organise the beginning of school. So this is a summer like no other. No, I bet. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. And it's amazing, isn't it? A million kids, a quarter of kids off last week. In a minute, we're going to go and get, get involved in the Oriel College row. Remember the road statue, should it fall? And we're going to speak to one of the lecturers there who is saying, actually, the Dons are acting like virtue signalling overprivileged people. Back in a moment. Well, we showed you that extraordinary footage of two members of the public, part of Channel Rescue, helping that boat onto the beach, that boat of illegal migrants this morning in Kingsdown in Kent. And I've asked you simply a question, you know, should members of the public get involved with migrant cross-channel activity? And I clearly think the answer is no, but Debbie on email says they're absolutely right to assist the migrants because preserving and protecting a single human life supersedes any law. What difference would it have made to try to stop a boat with 20 people on board when it's just yards from the shore? Debbie, what we don't know is at what point, at what point they were in contact with this dinghy. I mean, there are still many questions here, and I've sent some of these questions, uh, and I'm very, much, very, very much hoping, you know, that they will come back and answer some of them. Stuart says, the UK needs the migrants in boats more than ever now that we've left the EU. Get them checked out and get them into jobs. Migrants offer more to the economy than they take. They are strivers and get on and have taken risks to get here. They will get on, work hard and grow the economy. Well, that is an argument, Stuart, that we do here. But I would just remind Stuart and others that the British population has risen by 9 million since 2000. And over 80% of that is directly or indirectly down to immigration. And yet the cry seems to go out that we still need more and more and more people to come into a country whose population is frankly going through the roof. Adam says, no, no, no. He says, this is dangerous. This is not right. We don't need vigilantes. We don't need mob rule. We have a border force for a reason. We have more appropriate and better suited services that are accountable. And we should follow the right guidelines. Well, look, I mean, this is a subject uh, that really is producing just a huge amount of passion, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. Now, my next guest 
Dr. Marie Calva Dauda, um, has done something really rather brave. And she joins me from Oriel College right now. Thank you very much uh, for joining us and welcome to GB News. Now, I, I know the debate around the Cecil Rhodes statue and, of course, Rhodes endowed Oriel College with what was an you know, astonishing sum of money in the old days. And we have the Rhodes Scholars, including Bill Clinton and many famous other people. But whenever I've seen, uh, whenever I've seen Rhodes College, it's, it's protest. But you've got a rather different view on this, haven't you? Well, I have a slightly different view than, let's say, the vocal minority. But I'm not sure my view is that singular at all. Interesting, because we haven't heard the other view. I mean, you know, and you, and you talk about a minority, but we see pictures of students protesting. Uh, we see pictures, indeed, you know, of lecturers and professors uh, equally saying that roads should fall. Um, but tell us, I mean, you made some quite strong comments about your colleagues, uh, basically saying that they were virtue signalers uh, and acting in a rather overprivileged way. Well, I wouldn't say they are virtue signalers. I'd say they are virtue signalling and commenting on one specific action that they are taking against the statue, which, well, is not a judgment against the personality, but simply about the stand they are taking. OK, and, 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 and so, would, so would you like to see... Would you like to see us looking at our history rather differently? Because it seems... We're going through a period when one of the arguments, and we do hear it in some of our universities, is that because parts of our past we find unacceptable in terms of the way we live today, that we should somehow erase or cancel our past. How do you think, you know, Oriel in particular should deal... And, by the way, Rhodes was not a slave trader by any means, uh, but he was absolutely a colonialist. How should we deal... How should we think about, look at, that historical legacy? Well, first, we shouldn't pin all of these adjectives on Rhodes exclusively. Of course, he was a colonialist, but most of the Victorian and Edwardian people of his time were because they view it as the way the British Empire had to grow. And it was, let's say, the view of their times but it has influenced the present we are living in and the institution of Oxford owes a lot to the, the money that was uh, derived from colonial, uh, colonial trade from uh, well in Rhodesia what was Rhodesia at that yeah. time the diamond mining yet it has turned into an amazing center of transmission and preservation of knowledge and it's a bit sad to focus on, let's say, an uncomfortable past while the present is actually bright and very promising. As an African tutor here, I can see how actually tolerant and inclusive the university is, not because of any campaign or statement or whatever, but because there are so many dedicated academics who are just willing to give the best possible experience to their students, to give them, well, to tr transmit to them everything they have learned so that the students, in turn, can be um, sharers, transmitters of knowledge and culture. And that's something we 
should focus on much more than emitting opinions about things that ultimately are only transient. Well, I must say, I think that's a very positive uh, and very uplifting way to end this little discussion. And thank you uh, very much for coming on and for giving it. And wasn't that nice to actually hear some positivity coming out of Oriel College, some positivity you know, coming out of a university. And I thought that was really rather good. Uh, I don't know what backlash she might face over the next few days. I hope not very much because, you know, she's basically said the past was the past. We can't change it. And the endowment uh, that was given to Oriel College from Cecil Rhodes was £100,000, which, if we go back to uh, Edwardian England, was a huge, huge sum of money and it has benefited an awful lot of people. Now, coming up, Charlie Mullins of Pimlico Plumbers fame, who I think was just about the most anti-Brexit man in Britain. Well, he's coming in and we'll be talking pints. And let's see whether the Brexit wars are really over. Let's see what the pandemic is doing to his business. Joining me tonight on Talking Pines is Charlie Mullins, founder of Pimlico Plumbers and somebody who I think if I'd met him a few years ago, uh, we might have had a pretty heated discussion because, Charlie Mullins, you were, I think you were about as opposed to Brexit as I was. By the way, cheers. Yeah, welcome. cheers, fella. So, <laughs> good to see you. Yeah, good to be here. Good to have a drink with you, mate. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, actually it's in pubs and bars where people have proper conversations and we can agree to disagree, but do it simply. But you really, really felt very strongly on Brexit, didn't you? Yeah, I, I think it was, um, made, made a, uh, you know, a massive change to the country and the economy and... Um, you know, even now, we, we, we're not going to agree on it. I think it's the wrong move, but we have no choice but to get on with it. But, um, you know, it's causing massive skill shortages and uh, there's, there's already materials have gone up and delays and shortages and um, a hell of a disruption. I, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't think it's the right move, but, you know, maybe a few more pints. Uh, <laughs> well, we could be here a long time, I don't know. The point about skill shortages really interests me because... One of the things that I think has happened over the last 25 years or so, we've encouraged huge numbers of young people to go to university, you know, set targets of 50% and all the rest of it. Um, people go to university and in some cases they shouldn't really be going to university. They're not particularly academic. Uh, they get degrees that don't especially help them in the workplace. and Waste of time, aren't they? A lot of them. Ologies, ologies, yeah. <laughs> whatever they may be. They rack up debt, which they've been charged 6% on. And, I mean, you know, the guys that work for you, mm. the guys that work for you and work hard for you earn a pretty blooming good Yeah, living. I mean, you know, the, uh, any, any good tradesman, anybody does an apprenticeship now will, will, will earn loads of money and never be out of work, that's for sure. Um, as you say, it's an old argument and, and I think people are starting to see the difference now, the massive skill shortage, and again, caused by Brexit. Um, hang on, hang on, hang on. What I, the point I'm making to you is this, right? We'll come back to Brexit in a minute. We have not been encouraging our young people to go and learn trades and skills. We've almost looked at our... We've almost, in a snobby way, looked down at those jobs. Yeah. 
and said, we don't want our kids to do it. What's wrong with us? Because actually, whether it's being in plumbing or bricklaying or whatever it is, people can earn a damn good living. What's wrong with us in this country? Yeah, well, I just think it's a, a snobbish way of looking at it. It's like a class distinction thing. And, you know, you also got to remember the teachers that have gone to university are just pumping out the same thing. You know, get the university, get the university. Universities are not bothered. They just want bums on seats. There's, there's no necessarily a right job at the end of it. Uh, we, we've got about 70 apprentices with us now, and, yep. and they're doing great. And, you know, just, just one, one of them, just the, the other week, she finished her apprenticeship. She's out uh, as, a, as a heating engineer now, earning lo loads of money. Yep. And uh, she's buying her own house already, and she's sort of 20 years of age. So, you know, yourself, you go to university, they often never wind up get, getting their house for many, many years. So it's not necessarily the right move. I just think you need more yeah. people promoting it. So the skill shortages... I mean, how many, as a percentage of your workforce, how many of those would be overseas nationals? How many would be what? How many would be overseas nationals? How many of your workforce would be foreign by birth? Mm, maybe 5%. Oh, quite low. Yeah, very, very low. But, I mean, the fact that it doesn't over-affect us, it does affect the, the general construction industry in, in general, that there's a massive shortage of skilled tradesmen because they're obviously not yeah. coming over no more. So it, it well, doesn't... But, but let's train our own people. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you must have read my script. <laughs> that's, that's the obvious thing we have to do. More yeah. and more now, we've got a, a young sleeve school, they've got yeah. to either, unfortunately, go to university, have a job to go to, or go straight into a, a government-funded apprenticeship scheme. And that's the only way we will sort out the skill shortage. Well, I have to say, Charlie, I very much hope that we do do that, because I, th I, I feel we became too dependent on foreign labour, and I think we... You know, by the way, university, for the right people, of course they should go. You know, the yeah. right... People are academic, people who need it, want to be doctors, whatever they want to do. Yeah, of course, of course they should go. That's right, but, but you know, yourself, uh, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful to some people, but they go to university and they wind up stacking shelves in Tesco's or working in McDonald's and, you know, got a, a, a yeah. degree which is just yeah. no value to them. I'm so, afraid I know. And then I... you say the massive debt that's, that's there and, you know, also got to look at long term. I think the way that the skill shortage is, there, is now is... You know, if you think plumbers are expensive now, just wait for another three or four... You look like... like that then, <laughs> well, your prices, I mean, come on. No, but you pay for quality. People <laughs> will always pay for a good service. And, you know, in plumbing, cheaping is, is the dearest. Are you very sort of hands-on? I'd rather have one of your boys come and do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I would. Of course I would. I mean, I mean, I take the view if I try to do, if I try to do anything with plumbing, I'll make such a mess of it. You know, that, that yeah, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take that risk. I wouldn't. I would not personally take right. that risk. But, but you also got to remember. You, you, you say we're expensive. I mean, the fact that, that we turn up on time, we're smart outfit, you get the job done. We're very transparent, and, and your work's guaranteed. I mean, air is that expensive? You know. Um, well, I can't, are you agreeing with me? I'm not sure. No, no, I'm just saying that there is a perception that it's expensive, but I was teasing you a bit. Yeah, but... Well, you, I mean, you've done well. You've made a lot of money, haven't you? Well, the business has done very well. I mean, you know, we're turning over 50 mil. It's been a record year. And, yeah. and Despite Brexit? <laughs> I mean, I thought Brexit was a disaster, Charlie. It doesn't sound too bad to me. Well, it? it's, it's going to be a disaster, I think, for, for many other businesses. But already, you know, as I say, materials have gone up. We're waiting long for them. There's a massive shortage and the skill shortage thing. So, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, are we? And, and you know, you know yourself, there's more worrying things at the moment to worry about than Brexit. Well, there is. So on Brexit, it's done. You didn't, you didn't like it, but we, we, but we now Yeah, look, on. we have to get on with it, and, yeah. um, you know, we, we never agree on it, and, you know, one of us is wrong, and it's not me. Well, I have to tell you, is that European lager you're drinking there? Yeah. Well, I've got English, Cheap and English bitter for me. <laughs>
<laughs> no, we won't agree on it. But the great thing, I think, is, you know, we've had a great big row in this country over Brexit. And a row that went on for year after year after year, which I think was quite debilitating in a way, because all government, all parliament yeah. focused on was this row to the complete exclusion of everything else. And the fact that's over is great. However, that has been replaced by the pandemic. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, now, you think Brexit's worse than the pandemic, don't you? No, I'm not going to say that. No. I, think, I think it was quite with that. It's not, it's not, it's not worse, it, but, you know... You were misquoted on that, perhaps. Yeah, it, it, I mean, you know, obviously people have, uh, have died and, and millions of people or thousands of people have died and, uh, you know, it's the worst thing we've ever experienced in our lifetime. And, um, you know, I, hopefully, the, the, you know, it's going to change now and, and we get through it, but, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, as you know. But your business was an essential business. That's right. We carried on, the, you know, you know we, we've been busiest year ever... Yeah. Um, you know, throughout, throughout the pandemic, and we've been working all the way through it. And, um, you know, we geared ourselves up, and, and I think customers realised that, that we were engineers were going out there and taking regular tests and masks and yeah. sanitation and footwear. And, um, you know, fortunately, we was in that position to do it. And, and, you know, the fact that more and more people have been at home, more and more problems were there, um, it's just unfortunate that, you know, Air business has gone great, but so many businesses have suffered. And well, I mean, this is the point I was making last night here, is that it's the private sector that have paid the cost for this. It's privately owned businesses that have paid the cost for all of this, because mm. the public sector, people aren't going to lose their jobs or lose their pensions, but in the, you know, a lot of people have been really hurting. A lot of non-essentials have been hurting really, really badly. And it's almost like the final insult of all of this is, just as we're told that Freedom Day's coming, oh. yeah... It's all going to be great, and yet because of this ping, 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 the pingdemic as well, nightmare that's been, isn't it? And you know, I mean, I read a piece this morning from the boss of Iceland. You know, they've got stores yeah. all over. Uh, they've actually had to close, close stores. Down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. Oh, you're right. Um, we, we've actually got more people off now than than in, in the worst part of the pandemic. We've actually got more off now because, you? well, yeah, because you know they're being pinged like for, for nothing and, and they're taking regular tests. Some of their guys are, are tested on a regular basis but obviously they've got to uh, you know, go along with what they're being told and self-isolate. Um, you know, uh, we would normally lose on, on, a, on a sort of Monday 10 to 20%. Yeah. We're now sort of 30 to 40% what? people that we're losing. You're losing a third of your workforce? Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, they're saying is that, you know, I feel good, I, I, I'm testing regular but you know they've got to follow the guidelines, and you, you know thank thank God we have got guidelines. But but it's so disruptive. I don't think it's helping anything. And you know with the more and more people that have had the jabs, I mean I presume you've had yours. I, I have. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not an yeah. anti-vaxxer or anything like no, that. No, no. I'll, I'll, uh, I, mean, no, I think you just look like one. Well, being you know I'm a Brexiteer, of course I've got my problems. But no, I mean seriously, this is disastrous, and I I cannot for the life of me understand why. You know. If somebody gets a ping, let's say, because they've been near someone that's tested mm. positive, why can't they simply take a lateral flow test? And then if they've been well, double vaccinated, get on with work. And I don't understand this, you know, because we saw this thing at the weekend where Sajid Javid tested positive, we got the results Saturday night. Boris then says he's going to go back to work. Two hours, 38 minutes later, he U-turns and says he's going to isolate in checkers. And it's all over the shop. And I, think, I just think they got that messaging wrong. Do you, I mean, you know, you've got a hell of a profile as a businessman. You really have. And, and it's, it's interesting, as a country, not many business figures do have a big profile. You're one of the ones that does. 
have you, I mean, do you try and lobby government on these things? How do you, yeah, how, well, how well, do you try and influence? Well, of course, I mean, we come up with, or myself come up with, you know, the, the no jab, no job, and got a lot of stick at the time, and, mm. and, and, the, and the government was even knocking us. Um, I think it was the health minister at the time was knocking us, and it's all unnecessary because now we, we, it's proven point that, that there's no other way. We're not being offered any other way to get through the pandemic other than the jab. Yeah. It's definitely working, even though obviously cases are going up. But you know, fortunately, the death toll is nowhere near like the 1500s that it used to be at. It's about five percent of that. Yeah, well, it, yeah. But, yeah. but that's obviously only due to the fact of, of, of that people are having a jab. And well, uh, I think it's the jab. I think. Perhaps also this strain may not be as virulent. I mean, I know, there could be lots of reasons, but, but most people say it is the jab. Well, it's got to be the jab. I mean, and, 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 why and, would it not and, be and that? The stats, the stats do back that up. You know, and six, I think it's 60% of, of uh, people that are, uh, are going in hospital now have not had the jab. You know, nobody's saying you can't still get it. It's, it's proven you can still get mm. it, but it's certainly not as severe as what it was. And, and by the way, I've had my jab. I mean, there was, there was a delay on it because I was out of the country, but couldn't wait to have it done and uh, feel so much more safer and secure with it and at the end of the day it's all about people's safety customer safety uh, employees safety and, and just the general public in general yeah, I mean, so the truth of it is the truth of it is that you know most adults over 50 the vast majority have had two jabs yeah. there are one or two that object on on reasons of principle who don't feel happy about it or worried about the side effects of it but i i get it you know for people over 50 the balance of risk is that you're much more likely to get all through COVID than you are to have any reaction to the jab. But when it comes, when it, and I was talking to a talking to a head teacher earlier because again they've got a similar problem with isolation. I mean, a million, yeah. a million kids off school. I mean, you can't even believe yeah. it. Um, but I mean, mathematically, statistically, this disease does not pose a great problem to children at all. I mean, it's, it, it, it is absolutely minute. Do you think we should vaccinate school kids as well? I just, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I, I feel uncomfortable about that. I feel uncomfortable that, we, I mean, I get it that we vaccinate people that could really suffer very badly yeah. and, 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 and be very, very ill. But we kind of know that kids aren't going to be ill. Do we really want to vaccinate? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to... Difficult one, isn't it? I'm not going to put my head on the block here and no, say... No, no, we well, let's have a conversation. But what I'm saying, yeah. I think we should take the advice of, 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 of the health ministers and, and the scientists, and, and we're being told the vaccine is going to help us, yeah. and, and they're spreading it through the different ages, as you know now, because getting the more and more youngsters because of the nightclubs having it done. I think we've just got to take their advice on it. I mean, um, at the end of the day, you know, you know I think if we, didn't, if we didn't have the jab now, I wouldn't be here now. Wouldn't have been at Wembley the other day. You were there, were you? I was there too. Yeah, yeah I was, that wasn't a little in, but it was, a, it was great. Was you there? Yeah, I was. I mean, it was inside the ground was fantastic. Outside yeah. the ground, it was a bit... Yeah. One good, was it? I mean, one, you're or, right. one or two many of these, I think. <laughs> but I, I couldn't get it. I mean, if you're going to kick off at 8 o'clock on a Sunday, you, you know, what do you, what do you think people are going to do? Well, that's right. I mean... I, I thought um, that was crackers, you know. Yeah, but um, look, at the end of the day, we got there, and, and the good news is I think it's been a great morale boost for, the, for you know, all over the country, and, um, you know, one of us enjoyed the was, moment. No, it was great. I agree with you. It was absolutely great. I mean, the only... It, it, it did start off with controversy, the whole taking the knee business, you know, and a lot of England fans didn't like it. And then I noticed towards the, you know, in, in, the, in the later games, the taking the knee gesture happened very quickly and the fans didn't, didn't want to boo their own team. But were you for them taking the knee? Was I what, sorry? For the footballers taking the knee. Making a political gesture. I, well, thought, uh, well, I, I, I didn't like yeah, it. Look, uh, personally, I think it just, you know, sort of stirs up problems and, 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 and it's unnecessary. Um, but again, you know, 
what, what people decide to do is up to them. I, I mean, you know... Uh... Yeah, it just... It was a difficult one, wasn't it? I mean, Southgate, you know, he stuck to his guns. Uh, I didn't really agree with him. He stuck to his guns. And I have to say, that football team... The way they actually generally carry themselves and the way they behave. They're good role models, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that the, the downside was the racist abuse that happened afterwards, which is totally yeah, unnecessary, yeah. And, and I think that set us back many years. <clears> and, um, you know, it just shouldn't be. I mean, there would have been heroes if they scored and, and you know, they want to oh, string yeah, them up. Oh, yeah, yeah, But, you, I never... mean, you'd have got abuse whoever you were, I think, if you missed penalties. But, yeah. but look... But so, I, well, I... why are we a nation of, of, of keep, like, knocking people and, you know, rather than sort of, you know, supporting them and, and, and congratulating them? Uh, I think, uh, do you know what? The Americans celebrate success. And we're, yeah. and we're really good at knocking it. And I think you've had a fair bit of knocking copy over the <laughs> years, and I've had plenty as well. So what next for Charlie Mullins? Do you just go on with Pimlico Plumbers, keep going? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I've said we're very busy, and fortunately the company's very successful, and it's continuing to grow, and we're recruiting people, and more and more apprentices coming on board. We also do, you know, a nice bit of charity work. Yeah. I'm just going to slip it in. We're helping a young girl at the moment, Chloe, that's suffering with cancer, and, um, you. you know, it, 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 I think all that time type of thing make, makes the business, you know, something that I'm proud of and, and proud of the people that work for me. The knockers, are, are, you know, I mean, the haters are always going to hate me and the people that like me are always going to like me. Well, Charlie, thanks for coming in, mate. Well, Charlie Manners and I, it was pretty civil, wasn't it? I mean, there's no fisticuffs. <laughs> the Brexit wars, whatever we thought of it, are over, and that is a very good thing. Hopefully, once the pandemic's over, we can all get on. We're trying to make this country a great success. Charlie Manners, thank you for coming. Cheers, Nigel. GB News. Cheers, Mehdi. Every day, I, I'm asking you to barrage the farage. Send me in your thoughts, your opinions, disagree with me, ask me really difficult questions, and I will do my absolute best to try and deal with it. And Maureen on email asks, when can we expect MPs back to work and a full attendance in the House of Commons now that all restrictions have been lifted? Well, we're told it's going to happen very, very quickly. We're told within a week or two it's going to happen. But then Boris Johnson told us that it was Freedom Day, our lives would get back to normal, and yet he found himself on that very day giving us a press conference in isolation at Chequers. So I would have thought, given uh, that there's been no change to the policy on pings and people isolating, the chances of seeing a full parliament and a full PMQs, uh, given that the summer recess is about to happen, you ain't going to see it until the autumn at the very earliest, Maureen, I would suggest. Now, Sonia on email says, could the UK send these illegal boat crossers to an offshore fort for processing or put some wave machines in the water to make the route non-viable? One of the bonkers ideas that was put forward a couple of years ago was that maybe we'd put some nets in the English Channel. Um, now, clearly, these people knew nothing of the English Channel or the tidal rips in the English Channel. Um, any dinghy getting caught in those nets and then the tide starts to run, I mean, everybody would drown and die. We cannot do that. Much as I disagree, much as I disagree with what's happening uh, on that cross-channel route, I did find myself uh, last October out at sea uh, and we came across uh, a very, very small kayak. Couldn't have cost more than, I don't know, 50, 100 euros. There were two African boys from Mali in it. Um, they were in trouble. One had the early stages of exposure. Uh, the boat turned over. They were in the water. It was pretty horrible. And I remember having the hands 
at one of these guys and he was pretty limp and I couldn't pull him over the side of the boat, you know, sort of dead weight, as it were, literally. And you know what? However much I disagree with what they're doing, they are still human beings. And so the idea of wave machines or anything, anything that would actually cause loss of life, I think would be a disaster. Um, but I will say this. These new 11-metre boats that are being used on that channel route, they're taking up to 70 people. They are built for one crossing. They are not safe. They have sort of plywood glued into the bottom. And I suspect, I genuinely suspect, that at some point there's going to be a very, very nasty incident this summer. Alison on Facebook asks me, the vaccine isn't working. So what is the necessity for passports? Well, Charlie Mullins just argued that the vaccine is working and that if you look at death rates, look at hospitalisation rates in this country and in the USA, there is a fair bit of evidence that it does. Alfred says, why stop at statues, which, after all, are only just one facet of history? Consider all the buildings built with the proceeds of slavery, all the roads built with the taxes on slavers. Let's do the job completely. Demolish buildings, all buildings over 100 years old and dig up all of the roads. And I'll finish with Camilla says, does France not have any system of processing immigrants? They're quite happy to play wing three quarters, in my opinion. They're quite happy to pass the problem on to us. One thing for certain, this issue is not going to go away. It'll dominate non-COVID debate over the course of this, in uh, this entire summer.